Hey everybody, hope you had a great Christmas. I know uh, our family did, and uh, I'm glad you're in church with us today. Let me introduce the speaker, uh, Jack Hoy III. We affectionately call him Jack the Lesser, and he'll probably explain why that's the case. Uh, Jack grew up here in the church, uh, went to a seminary, uh, came on staff. Jack does a lot of things that you kind of hear and see, but maybe you didn't know it was him. Uh, Jack helps me with my messages on the weekend. Uh, sometimes uh, when something is significantly theological, uh, Jack laid the seed. Now I made it better, but he laid the seed. <laughs> Jack helps me with humor. Uh, he helps writing. He's a writer. Uh, he's a thinker. Uh, and, and he's a great guy that lives Jesus authentic, authentically uh, with his family and, and around us. And so I want you to welcome him today. Uh, I want you to treat him as a son of the house. Let's cheer him on. Let's give him a great big Seacoast welcome as he comes, Jack Hoy. Oh, thank you. Well, good morning. Um, going to be honest, I, I'm pretty introverted, so while I really appreciate that, it, it triggered all of my defense mechanisms. Um, the traditional introvert excited greeting is... Hi. Well, I'm glad you're here today, and I also want to welcome you if you're joining us from uh, perhaps an off-site campus or maybe online. It's good that you're with us as well. Uh, so as Pastor Greg said, I'm Jack Hoy III, and yes, I do go by Jack the Lesser. Um, just to kind of make things clear, that was my idea. Uh, when I came aboard, we needed a way to differentiate between me and my dad, and uh, I read a lot of history, I really enjoy it, and um, a lot of times in history, you'll see fathers and sons uh, kind of uh, take Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Elder, James the Last, to kind of differentiate them, and I thought, yeah, that sounds good. I'm not sure what it says about things, but that is the only nickname I have ever had that has stuck. <laughs> and as Pastor Greg said, I do a lot of research, writing, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, I've interacted with many of you on uh, sort of a Q&A forum that I do on this city, uh, where you guys are welcome to come and ask me whatever questions you have, and I'll be starting that back up again in January. Uh, I want to highlight real quick a couple of teams that I'm privileged to be on and work very closely with here, and that's the Creative Communications Department and Tech Arts. Uh, you probably don't know who they are uh, or, or exactly what they do, but you're surrounded by their work every weekend. From the greet and mix you hear out in the foyer to the sound mixing in here, lighting, video, uh, embeds during the message, graphic arts, all the way to the signs on the doors outside and the set design. Uh, they are such a big part of making every weekend happen. They were such a huge part of making Christmas Eve happen as well. Uh, would you just thank them with me for what they do? So I, I've been a part of Seacoast for about 20 years. 20 years. Um, I came up in the youth group with guys like Josh Surratt and Ernest Smith, though they were a few years ahead of me. And I actually remember my first Sunday at Seacoast. I do. Uh, back then, kind of this whole area of the room wasn't even here, and it was really just this section right here. And I actually remember where I was sitting. It was kind of towards the back by the doors, obviously with my family, by one of the pillars. And I remember that Sunday really well uh, because I saw something I'd never seen before. Um, I don't know if you have been to a service at Seacoast uh, from that long ago, or maybe you were even a part of us 
then. Uh, but back then, the lines between different parts of the services were a little more blurred, if you remember, between like the music and the message, for example. And so that particular Sunday, as Pastor Greg was kind of coming to the end of his message, uh, I saw about three rows back from the front of the room, I saw a woman just put up a hand. And I thought to myself, oh, cool, they take questions here. <laughs> Fantastic. But Pastor Greg just kept talking, and, and that was confusing for me. And, and he just kind of kept talking like she wasn't even there. Um, and, and then after a few minutes, uh, this woman just started waving her hand back and forth. And I thought, all this poor woman wants is to have her question answered. <laughs> hand raising. Didn't know it was a thing. That was the first time I'd seen it. That was new. Another Sunday, it was about 16 years ago, and actually right outside of those double doors underneath the stairway that goes up to the balcony uh, was the first time I saw a girl named Laura. And I didn't marry her then because there are laws or whatever. <laughs> but I did marry her. So Seacoast in a lot of ways is home for me. Um, I grew up here. I met my wife here. And now uh, my son uh, runs through the halls during the weekend, and that's really neat to see. And his name, by the way, is Jack the Fourth. And when he was born, someone said, okay, so since you're Jack the Lesser, does that make him Jack the Least? <laughs> and I said, all right, let, let, me, let me tell you how this works in, in my household. He's Jack the Greatest, okay? That's how it works. Well, if you're here this weekend, uh, maybe you're here from out of town and you're visiting family or friends for the holidays. Uh, I've got some good news for you. You're going home soon. Okay, you're going home soon. Uh, no more old futon with the form-fitting cushions. And they're not form-fitting because they're memory foam. They're just that old, right? They're just that old. And no more broken coffee maker in the kitchen. And why do they still have it? It hasn't worked in five years. Why do they keep it on the counter? Now, you're, you're going home. It's going to be fine. Uh, maybe you're here today and you have someone staying with you from out of town, family or friends, in for the holidays. I have better news for you. They're going home soon. Okay. They're going home soon. Get the good coffee maker out of the closet, put it back on the counter, okay? And by the way, they're the ones that broke the old coffee maker. They don't remember that, but you do. That's why it's on the counter. It's a message. Isn't it a relief to go home? I mean, even if a vacation has been just really refreshing or a trip has been just so good, there's something about going home that is such a relief. Even the trip home is nice. Do you know what I mean? Do you know the trip I'm talking about? Uh, I went to college in Virginia, so every time I, I drove up to school from here or came back down home, it was about a six and a half hour drive. Um, just so we're clear, if my mom asks, eight. Okay? <laughs> eight. And uh, I really enjoy long drives. I don't know if you're like that. Maybe you hate them, but I really love long drives. And if there's any kind of drive that you have to make with any sort of frequency, whether it's going back and forth to work every day, or it's a longer trip that you have to make for business or school, maybe a few times a month or a year, you almost develop um, kind of a relationship with the areas that you have to drive through, don't you? You know, for the shorter trips, uh, you know the, the detours to take when traffic is bad. You know what times to leave, what roads to avoid. You know that if you're running five minutes late, it's actually better to just wait 10 minutes and let the traffic clear a little bit than if it is to, would be if you left right then. And if it's a longer drive, 
you have areas of the trip that you really look forward to, parts of the country that you just love driving through, and parts of the country that you, you just, you wait to get past because it's just dull, dead highway. So for me, when I came back down from school, I would start up here in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, and I would come down 29 all the way to Greensboro. And at Greensboro, I would get on my favorite stretch of road, Highway 220. I love Highway 220, I really do. And, and it's because um, it's all woods and hills, and in the autumn, the trees have colors that we really don't get to see in, in Charleston. 220 is going to take you through these little North Carolina towns with names like Ellerby and Norman. And these are towns that are so small, you know, you could stand in the gas station at one end of town, and a friend could be standing in the parking lot of the Huddle House at the other end of town, and the two of you could talk without yelling. <laughs> Do you know the sort of towns I'm talking about? I love driving through those. And then after a little bit longer, you're going to go hop off of 220 onto 1, and then 52 will take you through Shiraz. Shiraz calls itself the prettiest town in Dixie. It's the birthplace of Dizzy Gillespie and home to a Hardee's with which I have a complicated relationship. <laughs> About 15, 20 minutes after Shiraz, you're going to come to a little town that you, know, you just have to slow down and enjoy because it's a speed trap with a zero <laughs> tolerance policy. Now, like, I don't want to be that guy, right? But if you're here from Society Hill today, it's good to, be, good to see you. Welcome. And after Society Hill, you're going to come down towards Florence and hop on 95. And after about 90 excruciating minutes on 95, you're going to get on 26. And that's when you start to feel close to home. You know, when it's about an hour and a half, that's when you really start feeling like you're almost there. But you're still far enough away to where you start having conversations with yourself. Like, what is speeding really? And if five miles an hour is okay, then isn't that really the speed limit? And so 10 over should be fine, honestly. But after just a little bit longer, you're home. You're home. And there's nothing like coming home. I mean, you could live in the smallest, messiest house and have the same feeling as someone who lives in a palace. And for others of us, uh, coming home is more complicated. Maybe for you, coming home uh, is tinged with anger regret or sadness, maybe fear. But you know what's universal? Is that you feel something. Home makes us feel something. Why? Because home is so much more than a place to keep our stuff. If home is just a place for our stuff, then according to the Self Storage Association, 10% of us have second homes. <laughs> uh, maybe you're in college like I was. Or maybe uh, you travel a lot for work. Or maybe you've moved eight times in the last 10 years. And so the place you're living at now doesn't really feel like home. What does home mean for you? I heard a story about everyone's favorite early 20th century United States president, Calvin Coolidge. Um, well, okay, I don't want to assume. I'm sure there are some Taft fans in here, right? I don't want to start something. So one day, President Coolidge and a friend were walking downtown D.C., and the president was kind of bummed out, just feeling down. And his friend really wanted to cheer him up. And as they were walking, they came into view of the White House. And so the president's friend kind of elbowed him in the side and said, hey, who lives there? And Calvin Coolidge just kept walking and said, nobody lives there. People just come and go. People just come and go. Uh, my college years were in a dorm. 
That wasn't home. And when Laura and I got married, we moved to Charlotte, but I always knew we'd be coming back down here, so Charlotte didn't really feel like home either. For me, home has always been where my family is. And wherever or whatever home is for you, there is something about it that sets it apart from every other place on earth. But what if you don't have a home? What if uh, it's just mile markers and landmarks and south of the border signs? What if you just keep driving? When we first meet Abraham and his family in the Bible, and these are the people through whom God is gonna change the world, they've just left their home. In Genesis 17, eight, God promises Abraham that one day his people will have a home, a country to call their own, but not yet. So for hundreds of years, they wander. They're strangers to everyone they meet. They're foreigners in every place that they stay. They're from nowhere, going nowhere. Eventually, their wanderings take them down into Egypt. And after 400 years of slavery, God sends Charlton Heston to bring them out or Christian Bale, I suppose, and take them home. Take them home. So what I want to discuss for just a little bit today, and I've got some points, uh, they're not on your outline sheets, but they'll be up on the screen. What I want to discuss a little bit today is, is this. Where does God call home? Where does God call home? Okay, well, heaven, right? Easy. Some of you are wondering, how much was seminary, Jack? <laughs> heaven. Like that Robert Browning poem, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. But here's the thing. When you read the Bible, it kind of seems like God never stays there. Like he's always coming down to be with people. Um, he just seems restless. He seems restless. He goes, oh, I could say, well, Jack, God's everywhere, right? And yeah, yes, the Bible definitely portrays God as being present everywhere all at once. But you know, it also portrays him as itching to be especially present in a particular place. Uh, lately, I've found myself reading a lot of stuff and really been challenged by uh, a French Catholic writer named Pascal Emmanuel Gobry. And about six weeks ago, uh, I came across something of his that just really struck me. And uh, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it, and I knew I'd be speaking today, and so I, uh, I reached out to him and I asked him if I could borrow some of his thoughts for today, and he very generously said yes. Um, and Gobri writes that if I were bold enough to try to summarize the Bible, I might choose this. It's about the God who longs to dwell with his people. The Bible is about the God who longs to dwell with his people. Because, yeah, you know, God is immeasurably beyond us. He is infinitely greater than our understanding. But Gobri reminds us that Genesis portrays God as uh, hanging out with his creatures in the Garden of Eden. And not only hanging out with them, but wanting to. Wanting to. It's the very first thing he does in the Bible. As soon as there are people on the earth, God goes down to walk with them, to be with them. The God who is present everywhere loves most of all to be present with his people. And that means you, by the way. 
that means you. Do you believe that? And if you don't, why not? You might say, well, of course, he went down in the beginning. I mean, Adam and Eve were perfect. Not for long. Not for long. And over and over, the Bible tells us that God wants to be with us, not because of anything that we could do on our best day, but simply because of who we are, his. That's why he wants to be where we are. And I think, I think Gobri is right. See, if the story of humanity is kind of the history of God and people being separated from each other, then maybe one way to view the Old Testament is as the story of God's unceasing efforts to be with his people. He makes the covenant with Abraham in Genesis. He says, I'm gonna give you a country and I'm gonna be there too. That's gonna be my home as well. When he leads them out of Egypt, he does so in pillars of fire and smoke so that the people can see him leading them. He gives them the law so that they can begin to understand what it means to live with God. And he has them build a tabernacle so that he can have a visible presence in their camp. The Israelite camp was marked by the power and presence of God. And when the people saw the tabernacle, that tent, where God said, my presence is gonna be especially there, when they saw that tabernacle, they were seeing proof that the God of the universe had chosen to make his home in the middle of their camp. Uh, But how many of you know that You can only be in a place for so long when you're not wanted. And God can only be in a place for so long when his people reject him over and over. And when they make make it very clear that he is unwelcome. To the point where he allows his temple to be destroyed. And he allows his people to be sent into exile away from their home. But God wasn't content to leave things that way. See, no matter how many times his people reject him, God can never reject his people. God's desire to dwell with his people can never be destroyed. It can only be delayed. It can never be destroyed. And I think that everything, everything in history is bent towards that happening one day. So what does God do? Well, actually, what he does is most like what he did in the beginning in the garden, in Genesis. He comes to walk with us. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, Christmas is the reaffirmation of everything God has told us about himself. God longs to dwell with us, and Jesus is the fullest expression of that desire. See, Christmas is the ultimate expression of God's ultimate desire. It's the ultimate expression of God's ultimate desire. When people saw Jesus, they didn't realize it. They were seeing proof that the God of the universe had again chosen to make his home among them. And he didn't come down to just get a few things done and get out. Um, Have you ever been talking with someone and you can tell that in their head they're already on to the next thing they have to do? Right, like they have checked out of your conversation. And eventually, because you're not getting the hint, they kind of start leaning in the direction that they need to be going, which is away from you, coincidentally. We know, we know when we don't have someone's full attention. We know when we're just another item on a to-do list. Anyone can tell when a person is impatient to leave. Jesus was not impatient to leave. 
We say it a lot in church, and especially this time of year, that he was born to die. But he was born to live. He was born to live, too. Jesus didn't come to crash on our couch for the night. He came to be with us and make his home among us. And even though he was kicked out of his hometown, the Bible says that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. That was okay, because his home was wherever the people of God were. So he travels around from town to town. He doesn't have a house, but he's always at home because he's with his people. And when we read the Gospels, we get a glimpse of what it looks like to live with God. We get a glimpse of what it looks like to live with God. Because living with us is his deepest desire. Have you ever been around someone and they were really homesick? Maybe you've been there yourself at some point. Um, Several years ago, uh, I met a guy who, and I met him at the point of his life when he had just moved out on his own for the first time. And he was away from his family. And I mean, he was a wreck. And when I met him, I kind of thought he was kind of a wimp. Um, Like he was, he couldn't keep it together. He stayed in bed all day, couldn't keep a routine. He cried all the time. And I thought, like, what what is this guy's deal? But the more I talked to him, and the more I heard his story, the more I realized that he wasn't weak at all. See, this guy came from a very large family, very large, and they all lived very close to each other. And so when he left him, or when he left them, that was the first time he'd ever been apart from his family for any meaningful distance or period of time, and it was, it was unbearable for him. And you know, I, I really think that that's a little bit like what God feels being separated from us. If it's true that his deepest desire is to be with us, then being apart from us must be unbearable. Must be unbearable. So, okay, if all this is true, if God's deepest desire is to be with us, then why is the world still the way it is? I mean, a lot's changed in the last 2,000 years, but like you probably still wouldn't have God over for dinner, right? Like, so like if he said, hey, let's go to your place, he'd say, ah, let's eat out. Let's eat out, because your place is a wreck and there's no way you're getting it ready in time and there's no way you're letting God see your house like this. Why is the world still the way it is? I mean, it just doesn't seem like it's a very fitting place for God to call home. Well, I think it's because he isn't finished yet. God isn't finished yet. He didn't leave his people in exile thousands of years ago and he isn't content to leave things the way they are now. In Hebrews 11, 13 through 14, uh, it says that the people of God have always understood that they are strangers and exiles on the earth seeking out a homeland, but they knew that they wouldn't be exiles forever. Verse 16 says that they hoped for a better country that is a heavenly one, and that because of their faith, God has prepared for them a city. See, they knew that God's greatest promise wasn't a country. It was that he would be with them forever. They knew that God wasn't finished with them yet and that he wasn't finished with this world yet either. See, if the incarnation, when God became one of us on that Christmas morning, if the incarnation is the ultimate expression of God's ultimate desire, then I think the resurrection, when Jesus rose from the dead, I think that's the promise that one day that desire will be realized once and for all. Everything in scripture points towards it. The very first thing that happens is there are people on the earth and God goes to be with them. And then what's the very last thing that happens? We go to be with God, right? Well, no, actually. No. 
At the very end, that city that God has prepared for his people, it comes down out of heaven to earth. God comes to make his home with us. Revelation 21.3 says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. God's not finished with this world or us. Uh, When Jack was born and Laura and I started taking him to the pediatrician, um, I noticed that right when he went into the office, the bathroom was out of order. And over the next few weeks and months as we went back for checkups and immunizations, it stayed out of order. And after about eight, nine months, I kind of start getting irritated on principle. Like, I know what I'm paying you, and I have a rough idea of what a plumber would cost, and those numbers are different is what I'm saying. I think that those two numbers are different. One is a bigger number, is my point. Well then, uh, a couple months ago, we went back, and everything was new. They'd ripped out the walls, they'd painted everything, new offices, new checkup rooms, new waiting rooms, new front desk, new floors, everything was brand new. Actually, they they had uh, at first been sort of half of the upstairs of this building, and they'd expanded to cover the entire second floor. Everything was new, and I realized they didn't fix that bathroom because they knew that they were tearing everything out. They didn't fix that bathroom because they knew that everything was about to be made new. And some of us, uh, we wonder, God, when are you going to fix the bathrooms of this world? And maybe some of that is we're learning to live together and live with God, and, and maybe some of that's our job. But maybe some of it is that God's plans are so much greater than anything we could imagine. You know, we're worried about this and that, and God says, listen, I'm ripping all of this out, okay? None of this is gonna be here. Revelation 21.5 says, behold, I am making all things new. But, you know, I think the remodel starts with us. I think the remodel starts with us. I mean, we're God's representatives on earth. And when we come here on the weekend, it's not just to become better people, though it is that too. See, when people come and, and they're with us here, they should get a glimpse of what it looks like when people try and live with God. And we're here so that we can learn how to live with God, so that one day we can do that forever. Uh, Lately, uh, little Jack has been doing this new thing. He's only been doing it for about four weeks, uh, where when I come home at the end of the day and he hears the garage door go up, he just starts running to the door laughing so he can be there when I come in. That's pretty neat. That's a new experience for me. It's pretty great, I have to say. Okay, why does he do that? Why is he excited? Well, because when dad's home, it's time to, like, take play to the next level, right? Like, the truck noises get a little bit better. Yeah, it's time to wrestle. It's time to be thrown way higher in the air than mom is comfortable with. (laughs) Dad coming home is something to be excited about. And here's the thing. I know that he's not thinking about it all day. Because he's still at that age where if he has a toy and then he sees another toy, like this toy does not exist anymore for all intents and purposes, right? Kind of a one-track mind. He is focused on what he is doing at that moment. So I know he's not thinking about it all day. So here's the thing. The posture of his little heart is to be excited when he realizes dad is home. One day God's coming home. What What does that do for you? I mean, what do you feel when you think about that? 
Maybe it is anticipation. Maybe it's, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something else. What is your posture towards God in this moment? I mean, maybe you think about God coming home and, and you feel fear. You're afraid of, what am I going to say to him? What's he going to say to me? Maybe you feel anger. Uh, maybe you've had a hard life. And for you, God coming home is an excuse to let him have it. Maybe you feel disappointment, regret, because it, there's so much more you want to do in life. Um, what would it take to change the posture of your heart to excitement and anticipation at the idea of God coming home? What would it take to set you running when you hear that door go up? Uh, if it's fear, I mean, maybe you need to be reminded that there is nothing that you have done or could do that isn't already covered by the love and grace of God. If it's disappointment or regret, there's always going to be something else that we want to do. We tell ourselves, as soon as I do this or that, then I'm, I'm good, right? That's all I want out of life. And then you do those things, and suddenly you realize, actually, there is more. There are more things that I would like to do. If it's anger, I don't necessarily have anything that I could tell you, and I'm quite sure that there's probably nothing you'd want to hear. But I do know that when God shows up and when we find ourselves in his presence, our hearts are changed. Our hearts are changed. Listen, one day, one day, God is going to be home. He's making that return trip now. We don't know when he's going to arrive. But one day, you're going to hear that garage door go up. And what do you do? What do you do? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that your desire is to be with us no matter what. Thank you that there is nothing that we could do to lessen that desire or to lessen your determination to be home with us. Change our hearts, Lord. Give us hearts that anticipate you being with us. Help us learn how to live with each other and you more each day. And may we display to others with our lives what it means to have a posture of anticipation towards our Father coming home. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Y'all can jack a hand. Thanks so much, brother. Great job.